started a little brief two-parter last Sunday. I started this thing asking the question, where does the Easter story come from? It comes from great-great-great-grandfather Bunny, and uh, he laid Hershey's Kisses eggs, right? No, like what? there's all kinds of craziness. Where does the Easter story come from? And uh, is it just something that's late? Is it something that's uh, a story told by the, in the church era? Is it something developed in the Middle Ages to account for things? And uh, we started this conversation last week about the origins of Easter and where they come from. And so I likened it to this. I likened it, just if you are here last week or not, I likened the Easter story to the Columbia River. It is massive. It's a massive river that starts in Canada and goes right down the middle of our state and cuts across and, and separates Washington and Oregon, at least for half of the state. And uh, it's just enormous. I don't know how many dams are on the thing. It is, it is huge. It produces a ton of irrigation and power. And, and so the Columbia River is like the salvation story of God that we look at at Easter. It's the massive flowing river that God had planned from all time to rescue humanity by sending his own son and him dying for sin and then rising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of God, reigning forever. That is, that's the whole flow of the God's work that we read about in Scripture. From beginning to end, it was all pointed to and around this event. It's a massive river. And what we've been, what I wanted to look at last week and this week was the fact that there's all kinds of rivers that contribute to the Columbia River. I told you last week there's over 60 major river systems that feed the Columbia River. It doesn't just appear on its own. There's all kinds of rivers that flow into it, that make it what it is. And that's the story of our scripture. There's all kinds of stories in the Bible that flow, and they tell a very unique story, but it all feeds the salvation story of God. So last week I looked at uh, the, I called it the Genesis River. We looked at a flow from Genesis that feeds it. And I looked at the Zechariah River. I looked at this flow, the story in Zechariah, that takes us from ancient times to what God was planning. Easter is not new. It's what God's always been planning to do. And so this one this week, I actually had parts of this sermon ready uh, for that week it snowed right after Christmas. So I've been sitting on this material for several months and it's going to be, if you're, if you're new, you're going to think, I don't know about any of this. Uh, if you've been somebody around the Bible for a while, this actually might surprise you because it really surprised me. And it's this whole trajectory or river taking us to the Easter story from this line here, the Messiah, son of Joseph. Messiah, son of Joseph. I had never heard this discussed before. And so Messiah means the anointed one or the chosen one. It's God's long promise of a deliverer, so that's a Hebrew word, means Messiah, son of Joseph. So I'll tell you where I heard it. It, The guy I heard it is a guy called David Mitchell. He's in the UK. You can go to his website if you want, brightmorningstar.org. And he's kind of this life work he wrote in a book about this. And um, I heard it on a podcast from a guy I like called Michael Heiser, who for a long time worked right down here in Bellingham, Faith Life. He's now in Florida, but his, bo- his uh, podcast is called the Naked Bible Podcast. Be careful typing that in, please, okay? That could take you to other podcasts you don't want to go to. But in, as in the Naked Bible, we're going to study the Bible, the Bible. That's the idea, okay? So anyways, that's where I got this whole concept of a 
Messiah, son of Joseph. And if you're somebody who's running around the Bible, like, well, I've heard of Messiah, son of David. What's this Messiah, son of Joseph about? What are we talking about here? And so it comes from, this is something that you can find, and David Mitchell does this in his book. He traces the ancient discussion among the Jewish leaders or the rabbis before the time of Christ. This is not a new thing. This is something that's been talked about for centuries before Jesus walks on the earth. And so here's where they, here's one of the places where the rabbis looked at it. It's the same passage we looked at last week, and, and they, it, it causes them to go in this direction. So in Zechariah 12.10, we looked at this last week, it says, this is God speaking, I will pour out on the house of David. The house of David is a kingly line. King David is the great king of Israel's past, and he was the one that God promised, I'm going to have someone be on your throne forever. So the house of David are descendants from David's family. It's a kingly family line. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. So it's really important to see who's looking at who. When they, when they, the house of David, looks upon him the one who was pierced. So they're going, wait a minute, the Messiah is supposed to be in the line of David. He's supposed to be from the house of David. So how can the house of David be looking on the one being pierced? That's someone else. So they began to go, is there two Messiahs? How can the house of David be looking on someone who's pierced who brings salvation? And so they began to say, what story do we have in our Bible of a suffering Messiah, of an injured, of someone who's been pierced, someone who's killed. What story do we have? And they began to say, well, we have the story of Joseph. There's a whole line of Joseph. And so when you begin to look at it, there's all kinds of things that we miss promised to the son of Joseph. So we're going to go on the little journey of that today. And so this is, you can look this up. I'm not making this up. This is the, the discussion when rabbis were looking over these Old Testament scriptures. They're going, wait a minute. How can this one, what's going on here? And even today, even today, there's a discussion among rabbis looking for two messiahs. They're looking for a son of Joseph and a son of David. Because the son of David is supposed to be the conquering, reigning king. It's like, well, who's this suffering person? It must come from the house of Joseph. So I'll show you some quick places here. You go right to First Chronicles 5. It says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, there's King David, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. And so the birthright is the idea the oldest son would get the, the most of the inheritance and the honor of the family. So here you see two things. You see a ruler, a chief from Judah, yet a birthright from Joseph. And so, they, so some Jewish hopes was there'd be two messiahs. What I believe Jesus speaks to is that Jesus fulfills the picture of all of them. There's all these pictures in the Old Testament, all these prototypes, you might say, and Jesus actually fulfills all of them. 
He's going to fulfill the son of David. He can fulfill the son of Joseph. He fulfills the one in the line of Moses. I showed you this last week as well. When Jesus was raised in Luke 24, he was walking with two disciples who didn't recognize him. He kind of had the cloaking device on. They don't recognize him. They're talking about, oh, it's so terrible. This Jesus we trusted, they killed him, and we don't know what happened, and we're so disappointed. And so Jesus is like, hey, let me give you a little lecture. He said, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is the interpretive key for reading your Old Testament. All the scriptures, which when Jesus was alive, all the scriptures would be what we have as our Old Testament, are about him. So Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the king in the line of David. Jesus is the greater Joshua. His name is actually Joshua. Jesus is the Moses. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, one like me is going to rise from among your brothers. So Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the greater Elijah. And I would argue, we're going to see today, that Jesus is also a Messiah, son of Joseph. I'm going to show you that. So hang with me. Some of you go, oh, really? Stay with me. And there's going to be a really cool part where I talk about oxen. So if that's not a teaser enough, stay with me. If you're into farm animals, here's where we're going. Our comfort and hope is in Jesus, son of Joseph. So that's why, So I'm going to argue that he fulfills the prototype of this. So if you don't know the Old Testament story, that's okay. In Genesis 12, God picks a guy called Abraham. He says, you, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a great nation, and all the world will be blessed through your offspring. So that's Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac, they have twins, Jacob and Esau, but God chose Jacob. He says, you, the line's going to go through you. Jacob has 12 kids from four different wives. You can read that story. I won't share it here. But Joseph's number 11. But he's the firstborn of Jacob's wife, Rachel, whom he loved. So he's a firstborn of her. He's number 11 to Joseph. Now see if this sounds like any of your uh, siblings, especially from a large family. (laughs) There's a favorite. Do you know who the favorite is in your family right now? Hmm? Oh, yeah, you were easier on them, right? They never had to. You ever say things like that? But when, so Joseph is number 11 of 12 brothers. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. He was spoiled. Jacob spoiled Joseph, and he brought him this special coat that was multicolored, so very expensive, dyed. And he, so clearly all the other brothers, why does he get a coat? I never got a coat. I got a hand-me-down coat. I got the 10th kid to wear this coat. He gets a new coat. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? So that's him. And then he has a dream that all his brothers are going to bow down to him. And he tells them that. <laughs> Not very smart. He's a teenager, right? So he's like, hey, I had this weird dream, and you guys and mom and dad are all going to bow down to me. Like, oh, oh, is that right? right? You can imagine. So they hate him. He goes out to visit him one day, and they decide, we're just going to kill him. We're done with this guy. They don't. They throw him in a pit and go have lunch to think it through. And one of the brothers actually says, let's not kill him. Let's not kill him. Judah, I believe. So they're like, hey, as opportunity has it. Then Midianite traders pass by, 
They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. He's carried off, just sold as a slave. Boom. They take his coat, they cut it up, they throw some goat blood on it, and they take it home to dad. Uh, We found this in the woods. Is this your son's coat? And he loses it, right? He's been torn by wild beasts, goes into an unbelievable mourning and sorrow. His favorite son, the son of his wife, Rachel, who had now by this time died. She died in childbirth with his little brother, Benjamin. So he's like, my wife's lost. My son's gone, and he's just grieving. But Joseph gets taken down to Egypt. I mean, can you imagine this? Can you imagine being sold by your siblings? And he, uh, he gets bought by a guy called Potiphar in Egypt. And he goes to work for him in his household, and God blesses him, and he moves his way up the ranks, so he becomes in charge of Potiphar's house. Think of like a wealthy estate or a large vineyard or something where you've got multiple servants you know, in and out, goods being sold, goods being traded, people to keep track of, schedules. He's in charge of the house. So he moves his way up, but Potiphar's wife lusts after him and is trying to talk him into having an affair with her, and he won't. He's completely righteous. He refuses entirely. And then one day she just grabs him and says, you're going to sleep with me, and he runs out right out of his clothes. And then she says, look, he tried to, he tried to rape me. So they arrest him, and he's in jail. Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Did nothing wrong. The lady completely lied, and he's in jail. And he's sitting in jail. How are you feeling about life right now, right? <laughs> he doesn't even know what his family probably thinks. They've sold me off. I do nothing wrong, and I'm in jail. And along comes a couple of guys that gets thrown into jail from Pharaoh's house. And they were his chief baker and his chief cupbearer. He was going paleo, so no wine, no bread. I don't know. He, they're thrown down there. They have dreams. And Joseph interprets the dreams. He tells the baker, well, he tells the cupbearer first, hey, you're going to be restored. And the baker's like, let me tell you my dream. He's like, uh, you're, actually, you're going to die. So <laughs> sure enough, they get called up. They hang the baker. He's sticking with the low carb. Hang the baker. He's dead. And the cupbearer goes back to the Pharaoh. And Joseph tells him, remember me when you get up to Pharaoh. And he doesn't. He's like, I don't care about you. I'm back to my job. I'm serving wine to the Pharaoh. Life is good. Two years go by. Joseph's sitting in a jail every day, sitting in a jail. Did nothing wrong. Finally, Pharaoh has a dream. He's extremely upset about it. He can't figure it out. He doesn't know what's going on. And the cupbearer's sitting there, and it's like, you know, there's this Hebrew slave in jail. He interpreted my dream and the baker's dream, and he was actually 100% correct. You might want to talk to him. So they rush Joseph up, shave him, bathe him, get him all ready to be in front of Pharaoh, and he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Basically, I'm skipping them. This is one of the most exciting stories in the Bible, by the way. So I'm skipping a lot of good parts. It's worth reading. It's in Genesis 37 and going forward. But the point of the dreams was there's going to be seven years of really wealthy times. Huge crop, 
huge harvest. And then he says it's going to be followed by seven famine years. There's going to be a famine on the whole world. So he interprets this to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, what do we do? And he says, well, you need to save up. You need to put away grain. So he's a, Joseph is immediately exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. He's number two. Just see if themes are already starting to pop out in your mind. Exalted to the right hand. So um, they do. They collect, they tax. I think they take a fifth of all the produce for the next seven years. Build huge grain cities. They have grain everywhere. Sure enough, a famine comes in the eighth year. And they begin to you know, sell the food back to their citizens. It starts to go around the world. And people start coming from around the world to Egypt to buy food because it's a massive famine, seven-year famine. Everyone's dying. Egypt is becoming unbelievably wealthy. The rest of the world's there. And up, Jacob and his household, the now 11 brothers, are hungry. And he says, there's grain in Egypt. He sends them down there. And this is part, of the, I'm going to have to skip a lot of the part of the story, but sure enough, they come in, they don't recognize Joseph, and they all bow down to him. They all bow down. Eventually, he reveals himself, the story goes, they go get dad, they all move down, and they all actually worship, <laughs> bow down to Joseph, just like his dream was. But the point of the story, at the very end, um, they move down there, that's how the Israelites got to Egypt in the first place. When Jacob, his dad, dies, the brothers are like, you know, he might have been being nice to us while dad was alive, but now he's gone, he's going to kill us. So Joseph says to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Does that sound like a story of a Messiah? You meant it for evil. The chief priests were plotting to kill him, but Jesus had it all planned. That's the story of Joseph. So when the rabbis were reasoning in that Zechariah passage, and they said the house of David is watching someone suffer, Joseph suffered. So I'm going to show you this. I'm going to go quick as I can here. I want to show you two places where there's promises to Joseph that are fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus fulfills this type of a Messiah son of Joseph. So it starts in Genesis 49. You can go there if you want to jump there. Go to Genesis 49. At the end of Jacob's life, he's going to talk to all his sons. Verse 1, he said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what will happen to you in days to come. So Jacob's going to pronounce over his sons kind of this blessing. Or it's not a blessing in all their cases. Skip down to Joseph's line. Joseph is verse 22. He said, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring as branches run over the wall. You can picture like a fruit tree or a vine, just fruit hanging off it. Look at verse 23. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. That sounds like Joseph, right? <laughs> Horrible things. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Hmm. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessing of my parents, 
up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. Hmm. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Well, there's a lot happening there. Here's a few. He was attacked, yet helped by God. Did you hear that? The archers shot at him, but he remained unmoved, right? His brother sold him. Potiphar's wife lies about him. He remains unmoved. He's helped. He says, from there is the shepherd and the rock. Did you hear that? From there is the shepherd and the rock. And then when he's going to have all this blessing up to the eternal hills. Did you hear that? Eternal blessing. So does this appear at all in Jesus' life? Can we look at anything where we see someone attacked, helped by God, anything that's a shepherd, that's a rock, eternal blessings? Is this, does Jesus fulfill this? I think the first hint of it comes in John chapter 1. They're just getting to know Jesus. It says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He, was, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now you could say they're just talking about his dad because his earthly dad is, was named Joseph. But it's, to me, it's a hint. We have found him of whom Moses wrote. Who wrote Genesis? Moses. Who wrote Genesis 49 with the blessing to a son of Joseph? So I think this is the first hint of it right here. We have found him, Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't say the son of David. He says the son of Joseph. I think that's a hint to this picture that someone's going to come as a type of a suffering and rising Messiah. John 10. I am the good shepherd. Did he just make that up? I think it's pointing to it. Because what did he say in Genesis 49? He was attacked. He was helped by God. From there is the shepherd. Jesus comes on the scene. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Attacked. Helped by God. If you jump down to verse, uh, let me see where we at. I'm going to jump ahead here just to move us on. Verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again, this charge I've received from my father. The archers bitterly shot at him, but he was helped by his God. From there is the shepherd, the rock of Israel. So Jesus is claiming very similar things. I'm going to be a shepherd, but I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to be attacked. He goes on in verse 27, the sheep hear my voice and I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life. What was the blessing of Joseph? Up to the eternal hills. Jesus gives eternal life. One more and I'll move on from this one. In Acts 4.11, Peter and John are arrested and they're on trial and they're saying, why are you healing people in the name of Jesus? And they say, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. From there is the shepherd, the rock of Israel. That's what it said in Genesis 49. The apostles are saying, this Jesus is the stone. He's the rock. He's the cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So that lines up. right? 
attacked yet helped by God. Jesus is attacked. Jesus is, gives his life over, yet he's helped by God and raised from the dead. He calls himself the shepherd. His disciples say he's the rock. He promises eternal blessings. So that's one line of uh, Jesus, son of Joseph. He's fulfilling that. Okay, now the part you've all been waiting for. The son of Joseph and the two oxen. Okay? Like, what even is an oxen? So you go to Deuteronomy, go to Deuteronomy 33, and uh, it's a similar thing. This time, instead of it being Jacob on his deathbed, it's Moses about to die. Deuteronomy 33, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. So he's going to go right back through the tribes and bless them. Go down to verse uh, 13, he picks up the tribe of Joseph. Verse 13, of Joseph, he said, blessed be the Lord by his hand with the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath, with the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months, with the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills. We heard that before, didn't we? Eternal hills. With the best gift of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwells in the bush. Who's in the bush? Yahweh meets Moses in a bush. It says, with the favor, the one is going to have favor. When Jesus is baptized, the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The favor of the one. May these rest on the head of Joseph, on the pate of him who was prince among his brothers. A firstborn bull, he has majesty. And his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim and the thousands of Manasseh. Those are Joseph's two sons. So let's look at this here. I don't know if you've any, ever wanted to, any of you ever wanted to be blessed by being compared to an ox. Right? Is anyone you're about to leave home? My son, go forth like a powerful ox to your college tear up that no and you're like what is this blessing they did it weird in those days it's actually really 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 powerful here he says first that the son of joseph is a firstborn bull and then he says he's a a wild ox those are actually two different words the first word is the word shore which is the word for a domestic ox this is a farm animal this is a servant animal all right this was there all right we go you go by john deere They had an ox, right? This is a domestic ox or cow that was a servant animal. Now what's interesting about this is that when Israel was freed from Egypt, the tenth plague that got them out of Egypt was the death of the firstborn of Egypt. And after that, God said, every firstborn is mine because I want you to remember that I rescued you. So look here in Numbers 18, he says, Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or of beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And their redemption price, at the month you redeem them, you shall fix at five shekels of silver. So basically, the firstborn is the Lord's, but you could redeem them or buy them back. So when your kid was born, you made an offering. 
You can read that in the light. Jesus' parents took him to the temple to, to do that. You kind of bought it back, and it was a reminder. God rescued us because of the death of the firstborn. He said, of course, the shekel, we don't know that value. But the firstborn of a cow, that's the same word, the shore, the firstborn of a cow, an ox, or the firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and shall burn their fat. So they could redeem some things, like their own kids, but if you had a first, if your ox had a baby ox, you sacrificed that one, right? That's what you did with them. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He comes as a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. To Joseph, he said, first, he's a firstborn bull, born as a slave animal, and he has majesty. And when John talks about the enthronement of Jesus, it's on a cross. So the first bull, the first ox, is domestic, it's a slave animal, and it has to be sacrificed. That's Jesus, right? And then it says, his horns are the horns of a wild ox, which is an aurox. Now, I'd never heard of this thing. But this was a real animal that's now extinct. This is what Julius Caesar said about it. They are a little below the elephant in size, and their strength and speed are extraordinary. They spare neither man nor wild beast, which they have espied. Thus Julius Caesar described the aurochs, the ancient ancestor of domestic cattle, which inhabited much of Europe before being wiped out hundreds of years ago. About the 1700s is the last one of these things out there. There's all kinds of ancient art depicting this aurochs. They find skeleton remains of them. You can see those. This thing was two meters high at the tip of the horns. For us non-metric people, a meter is 40 inches. That's 80 inches. That's six feet, eight inches tall. Till, how tall are you? Six. There's a horn taller than Till's head, Okay. You come up to that animal and his horn is going to poke Till in the eye. That's a pretty scary animal. That's a pretty scary beast. That's a wild beast. And they roamed Asia and Europe up to the 1700s. In fact, there's been programs to try to re-get the line going. And with this bull, I, you, could, you, know, you can go down a rabbit hole on YouTube. Go for, if you want, look up the aurochs and you're going. So this is not a made-up animal. This was a fierce ox that roamed there, and nobody messed with him. So he said to the son of Joseph, you're a firstborn ox for sacrifice, but you're also a wild ox, and with your horns, you're going to rule the nations. Wow. When Jesus comes in Revelation 19... It says, then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped with blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. 
And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the wild ox. This is the Jesus that reigns. There'll be no rebellion. There'll be no nation. There'll be no power that will stand above him. That's why I say that Jesus is the son of Joseph and the two oxen, right? He's both of them. He's the firstborn for sacrifice, and he's going to reign over the nations. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So this is this whole trajectory. A Messiah, son of Joseph. That there be a suffering one, right? There would be one that is shot down and rises up. There would be one that's for sacrifice and yet reigns. And we're looking at this Easter story. This has been flowing, what God's been doing. Jesus, right, he is the suffering and rising shepherd rock. He is both the oxen for sacrifice, and the wild ox to reign forever. How does that come home for us? There's a sense of comfort and hope in Jesus. Because a lot of times we think this is way far out or way distant or something that you can't grab. But all of your comfort comes in Jesus. Rejected by his own family. Have you been rejected by your own family? right? Everyone he came to save turned on him. You ever been turned on by anyone? Turned away from? Right? He says he was a man of suffering and acquainted with grief. Any of you suffered? Struggled? Life's been hard physically, emotionally, spiritually? That's the whole side of the suffering son of Joseph. <laughs> Rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, left in prison, left for dead. Jesus, given up by his own family, thought he was crazy. Handed over by one of his own disciples. All grief, all suffering, all pain, he can relate to it all. He took it all to the cross. Surely our suffering he bore. But then there's a sense of victory. We don't stay there. We suffer and we come to Jesus, but there's a sense that he will finally bring all evil down. He will finally reign forever. It's not going to be broken forever. And you see that in the life of Joseph. He, he comes to the right hand of Pharaoh. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father and will return to reign. And so there's this great sense of victory and hope we take in Jesus. Right? It's, it doesn't limp to the end. Jesus reigns forever. And so you, you can take all of that to him. You can be in a place of great suffering and rejection and come to him. You can be in a place of feeling great defeat and come to him. And he can both understand and assure you of an eternal reign. So we bring it all to him. Let's pray. Why don't we just pause and do that now? Lord Jesus, I just pray right now, in this quiet moment, people would bring their distress to you, their abandonment to you, any rejection to you from their own family, from their community, from people they tried to help, that you understand completely. If you just just speak that out to Jesus in your own mind and heart, if there's some part of you that just feels that, he can identify. And we come to you also thinking about the The way things are broken, it seems like the world is in disarray and disorder, and yet you've overcome. So we bring to you a sense that you will set it right. You will defeat all evil. 
you will reign forever. Give us an incredible sense of hope. And Lord, we pray again this Easter season that people would recognize that you gave yourself for them and their hope is in you. And we just thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.